Tonight on Throwback Thursday 1970, as Tune celebrates 50 years. We're joined by Senior Lecturer in Applied Physics, Dr. Stephen Bosey, to discuss the failed Apollo 13 mission launched on April 11, 1970. This is 50 Years of Tune FM 1970. And to help us celebrate 50 years of Tune FM, we're going to be looking back at 1970, and we're joined by Dr. Stephen Bosey, a senior lecturer in applied physics here at UNE. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. It's a um, very important date for me. I, I remember all this stuff as a kid. <laughs> one, one of my uh, fondest recollections from that time, except I don't remember if it was before or after Apollo 13, was that for Christmas... I got a model of the Saturn V booster, you know, an Airfix model. It would have been nearly a metre high. It was, it was the, the pride of my life. I, kept, I had it for years and years and years, well, well into my 20s, that I had bits and pieces of it lying in a cardboard box somewhere. Wow, okay. So you had a real connection to it then. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Well, it's, it's a very important event that we're going to be talking about as well. Um, Apollo 13, um, which for me is just a Tom Hanks film, but <laughs> it's a very significant turning point in, um, it's certainly in, in space exploration. So to give us a bit of background, um, as the name suggests, it's the 13th Apollo mission. What yep. exactly was the Apollo program? Well, the Apollo program was a program to put human beings on the moon. There were several missions before they actually put somebody on the moon because they had to test all the individual systems. So the first mission to actually land people on the moon was Apollo 11. So Apollo 13 was going to be the third mission to put people on the moon. But as, as you all know, that uh, it didn't make it. Yes. Yeah, so uh, you mentioned that Apollo 13 was meant to be the third mission to the moon. What exactly? Well, the, third, the, the third manned mission to the moon. Yeah. Third manned mission to the moon, yes. Uh, what exactly was it going to achieve? What were the, the scientific, um, what, what kind of exploration were they doing as opposed to what Apollo 11 and 12? Well, they, were, they wanted to do a bit more geology. Um, they wanted to upgrade the, um, the seismometers that had been put on the moon in, uh, in Apollo 11, the, the first manned mission to the moon. So the, the landing site was meant to be a crater called Fra Mauro, Italian name. It just basically means Brother Mauro, who was the, the name of a, um, who was a monk and was a, um, a, a, a famous cartographer. And so this particular uh, crater was named after him. But the importance of this crater was that um, they wanted to examine the material that had been splattered around the crater by, by uh, the impact that, that created it. Um, and so this was, this was a, good, uh, a good place to, um, to, to examine the, what was called the regolith in, in, on the moon. This crater was meant to be quite deep. So 
there were a number of bad omens in the lead up to Apollo 13. I'm not just talking about the number being 13. (laughs) Just, I want to make a comment on that. People always go, well, you know, 13. Yeah, but I mean, Apollo 1, there was a fire on board, a pre-test, a pre-launch test, uh, they killed three astronauts. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing special about the number one in terms of the bad luck stakes. But yeah, okay. What are the other ones? Because I've got, I've got another omen. If you don't, if you don't, uh, if you don't cover it yourself, go on. Well, um, in particular, the, the most um, prominent thing that would probably suggested the mission was a little bit cursed was that they lost an astronaut to uh, after exposure to rubella and had to replace him at. Uh, yes, and in these COVID-19 times, isn't that just appropriate? <laughs> Very coincidental. As it turned out, he didn't get... Uh, yeah, that was... Um, uh, hang on, let me just... That was uh, Ken Mattingly. So Ken Mattingly was meant to be on that mission, but uh, he was exposed to somebody who had caught rubella. As it turned out, Ken Mattingly did not get rubella. But I bet that after after that, even though he thought he was the unluckiest guy in the world, I bet he thought that that day he was the luckiest. Well, I had a um, quick look at uh, the the space missions that he did afterwards as well, and I definitely think he's counting his lucky stars because he he managed to do a few missions later that um, were successful. So, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, uh, definitely a a lucky break for him. But um, what else was there that suggested from the get go that this was? Well, actually, in the middle, in the middle of the launch, uh, when when the second stage was firing, I, I, just just to make it clear, the the rocket that would, that in order to get something to the moon, you need a really big rocket, okay, and most of that rocket is just full of fuel to get the object into a high enough orbit to be able to reach the moon. So, and so what happens is the, the rocket was called a Saturn V and it was made up of three stages. So the, the bottom stage is very large. You burn that off, you get, you get yourself high up, then the second stage goes off. And the, um, the, finally, the third stage is, is, has got all the, the people on it so, and, and the, the lunar module and the, the command and service module are in the third stage. So... But what happened was during the firing of the second stage, the middle engine shut off two minutes early. So there was this sudden decrease in the thrust. And because of that unexpected shutdown of that engine, it caused what they call pogo oscillations. The pogo, as in pogo stick, you know, you jump up and down on a pogo stick. So what pogo oscillations are is when when the whole rocket starts to oscillate along the vertical axis because you get the sudden decrease in the thrust, so the, the, um, that shifts, shifts the fuel around, causes a decrease in pressure, um, uh, it causes, you know, causes movements in, in the fuel, you then get an increase in the thrust, and you get this kind of oscillation as the thrust goes up and down, up and down. And uh, after the mission, it was decided that had there been one more oscillation, it probably would have destroyed the whole rocket catastrophically so um so yeah they they they, you know they thought they dodged a bullet (laughs) well (laughs) during the launch but okay so that was yeah i thought that was the other the other bad omen i should bring up i i i'm sure there are others can you think of any others um 
nothing off the top of my head, but those were the, the main ones. Um, uh, well, a couple of, okay, maybe a couple of other little details. Now, as, as we said, Ken Mattingly got scrubbed because of the potential rubella exposure, but there were a couple of other people who were on the queue for this mission. Um, so there was a fellow called Don Isley, and he got bumped from the queue for this mission because one, he'd had an extramarital affair during the period. And the last thing you want is, uh, is, is to have a bunch of uh, astronauts ready to have a fist fight with each other oh, during no. training or on the mission. So they, they, they dumped him. And also he, he'd been um, acting up a little bit during training. And there was another fellow called Gordon Cooper who was knocked out of the queue because he, he was slack during his training. So, um, you know, it's really easy to get yourself out of the queue. You've got to be very well behaved and not get rubella. <laughs> even, well, he didn't even get rubella, just not even. Yeah, yeah, or he did suspicion that he might. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, okay, what exactly happened to the spacecraft on the way to the moon? Because we've talked about it was, it was not exactly the, the neatest mission from the get-go, but then, yeah. of course, uh, something went catastrophically wrong. Okay, so what, what happened was, uh, after that, the end of that, um, all the pogo stuff was, was done and dusted, everything seemed to be moving smoothly, um, but uh, routine checks of pressure in the, the oxygen tanks, the, the readings for the oxygen tanks, the pressure seemed, seemed to be a, a little bit incorrect. But that's not unusual because what tends to happen is um, in, in these tanks, you've got, to stir, you've got to stir the contents of the tanks a little bit to make sure that the calibration of the pressure gauges is, is right. So what they, uh, what they did was they flicked the little switch that operated a little fan that would stir the, the oxygen in the oxygen tank. And then uh, they heard a, a, a bang, a rather loud bang. As it turns out, what had happened was that uh, there was some damaged insulation in the electrical wires in one of the tanks. And what happens is that insulation is, is you know, normally some sort of plastic material. And if that comes in contact with oxygen, well, you know you need oxygen to burn. Yes. Okay. And there's, you know, there's 20% oxygen in, in, in air, and air is is not very concentrated, you know, because it's a gas. Yep. But, but liquid oxygen that you have inside tanks is roughly, I, you know, I didn't do the back of the envelope calculation, but it's roughly a thousand times more concentrated than, the, than oxygen gas. Yeah. So all of a sudden you, you've got this damaged insulation, which is burnable, in the presence of oxygen at a concentration that's, you know, a roughly a thousand times more concentrated than normal. And uh, anything burnable in, in exposed to liquid oxygen becomes explosive. Mm -hmm. uh, it's why in, in, in labs, you're not allowed to use grease on the pipes that go into an oxygen cylinder because the grease will just explode if, if it comes in contact with a high concentration of oxygen. So that's, that's what happened to the, the tank. So that explosion caused the, uh, two of the tanks to rupture. It also caused damage to the, um, one of the transmission antennas for communicating with Earth. 
which interrupted their communication for a while, so they had to switch to another antenna. And as it turned out, it also damaged the, the um, propulsion system, you know, the, the rocket on the service module, although they didn't know that for sure at the time. They suspected it might, might have, but it turned out it, that it probably did. Hmm. Um, so basically, you have this, this high-pressure cylinder exploding, and as it explodes, it just tears everything around it apart. And it, not only that, but it also filled the space around the spacecraft with tiny little bits of debris, which, you know, look a bit like fairy, fairy dust, you know, like glitter floating around the spacecraft, which meant that whenever they looked out the window, if they wanted to do any kind of, um, uh, any kind of navigation using the stars, you couldn't see the stars because you just saw fairy dust everywhere. Wow. You've been listening to Throwback Thursday, celebrating 50 years of Tune FM. Elsewhere in 1970, in April, Paul McCartney announces that the Beatles have disbanded. Let It Be is released as their final album a month later. Here it is now to celebrate 50 years of Tune FM, Let It Be by the Beatles. There is still a chance that they will see there.
night is cloudy There is still a light that shines on me Shine until tomorrow, let it be I wake up to the sound of music Mother Mary comes to me Speaking words of wisdom, let it be This is Throwback Thursday 1970, celebrating 50 years of Tune FM. Apollo 13 with Dr. Stephen Bosey. To put this in, in context, this is something that uh, I think people know, but um, don't think yeah. of much. No one in history, no man in history has ever died in space. Is that correct? Uh, as far as I know, yeah, that's right. So yeah. this, was a, this was a first and it was a catastrophe, really. That it was that. Um... Well, actually, no, no. There was there were some. There were people that died in reentry. I remember as a little kid, there were there were three cosmonauts that died. Um, I think it was a Soyuz reentry. Now, whether whether or not you call that space, you, space is arbitrarily set at a hundred kilometers above the Earth's surface. Yeah. I, off the top of my head, I don't know if these guys died above that hundred kilometers or. Or below, I think it was below. If, if they burned up, it was probably below 100 kilometers. So, yeah, may, maybe technically you're right. No yeah. one died actually in space. Okay. But in the context of the political space race and yeah. um, what was meant to be a, a successful mission, and, um, and of course, that being the case as well, that no one had been stuck in space, no one had properly um, been in this situation before, it was, it was unprecedented. Yeah, yeah. So immediately, uh, what did NASA, NASA's attention turn to? Because suddenly this mission isn't a mission to get to the moon anymore. It's so after this explosion, they lost uh, one, one oxygen tank emptied completely and another one had a slow leak in it. And they figured that it was just a matter of hours of oxygen in that second tank. Uh, but also, not only that, but you not only need the oxygen to breathe, but you also need the oxygen for power because on the, uh, on the command and service module, I, I, what I, I should explain what these modules are. Uh, right on top of that third stage of the rocket, you had the packed in there, you had a thing called the lunar module, which is that thing that looks a bit like a four-legged spider that was intended to land on the moon. You have... Uh, I think all the service module, which think of it as being a bit like the cardboard cylinder out of a toilet roll, but just imagine a slightly squat one, not, not quite as tall as, as one of those. 
And on top of that was a cone called the command module. So, so the toilet roll is the service module, and that's where you've got oxygen tanks, you've got the propulsion systems, you've got you know, major computer systems, you've got, you've got a whole bunch of systems to, to keep the astronauts alive. And then you've got the command module, which is a little cone that sits on top of the toilet roll. And that's where the, the, the three astronauts sit for re-entry. So when they come back to Earth, they've got to be in that. Okay, so the tanks were in that service module in the, the dunny roll part of the, of, of the craft. And the oxygen was needed, yes, to breathe, but it was also needed for fuel cells. Now, fuel cells are a special kind of battery where you burn fuel to create electricity. And they were hydrogen-oxygen fuel cells. So as you burn the hydrogen and oxygen in the fuel cell, you produce electricity. But when you burn hydrogen and oxygen, you get, what do you get? Hydrogen and oxygen. Carbon yeah. dioxide? No, 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 come on, come on. What, what's the formula? What's the formula for hydrogen? H. H. And, and oxygen's O. o. So if o. you stick them together, what do you get? Water. H. Yeah, you get H2O. You get water. water. So, I could be a science student. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're burning, you're burning the hydrogen and, and with oxygen to make electricity, but you also make water. So rather than bring a separate bunch of water up, you just use the... the, the um, the exhaust from the fuel cells to make more water. So it was also the supply of water. So, ne so, so now the, the fuel, that the, the fuel, two of the fuel cells had shut down completely and they had to switch off the others because they didn't want to, you know, they want to preserve the, whatever oxygen they had as long as possible. So they had no fuel cells. So the only water they would have had was the, would have been the, the, the water that had been collected so far from the, um, from the fuel cells, and there was some in the in the lunar module. That's the little spider thing. So it said limited water. They had limited electricity because they had to switch the fuel cells off to preserve the oxygen. Um, and so, whereas normally they would have been sitting in the command module, that little conical shaped capsule for re-entry for most of the trip until two of them would have got into the lunar module for the moon. Now they were sitting in the command module, but it was, um, it was no longer safe to be there. So what, what it was decided that they had to crawl into the lunar module, which had, you know, all the, the safety systems in there required for, to, for the two astronauts to go to the moon. Uh, so they, they crawled into there, but they had to preserve whatever little water they had. Um, they had to preserve the oxygen because there wasn't really enough, there was only enough oxygen in there um, for, for the lunar excursion, not, not for the whole mission. Uh, and they had to save as much electricity as possible, much power to be able to make the maneuvers they needed to get back to Earth. Um, okay, so how are they going to get back to Earth? So you'd think that when a disaster like that happens, what you'd like to do is just turn right back and go home. Okay, yep. so turn the craft around and go back home. But in space, it's more complicated than that because it's not like you're just on a straight road and just turn the car around and drive back. You, you've got the, the gravity of the moon and the gravity of the Earth. So you're, you're executing, you're in, you're in orbit. 
Mm. So just to turn around and go back, you, um, uh, you're going to have to use fuel to, to orient yourself right and so on and get, get into the re-entry corridor and all that sort of stuff. And they calculated that for that, what they called the direct abort, they would have needed three hours of fuel cells to power the systems they needed to do that. But they calculated they only had two, hour, two hours of power in the fuel cells because mm. of that loss of oxygen. The other, the other problem with that was they would have had to use the main engine from the service module, this big nozzle sticking out of the back of the toilet roll. And they suspected the explosion may have damaged the propulsion system on the service module. And as it turned out, the, the, you know, the evidence was collected later that it had. So they couldn't risk that. So what was the other option? Well, the other option was to use a little bit less or use a lot less rocket power to put the, um, the, re the remaining craft into what's called a free return trajectory. Okay, that means to put it into an orbit where without needing any additional power, it would just naturally take it back towards the Earth and put it into the right place for re-entry. That free entry, that free return trajectory would be like a big, think of a big, um, um, a big uh, figure eight orbit, one loop of which goes around the moon and the other loop of which goes around the Earth. Okay, so if you're in that orbit, then you can, you can execute that orbit without having to use up any more thrust and just rely on the gravity to keep you in that orbit. So it was decided that was the safer option. The problem is that meant going all the way back around the moon. So that would have added four more days. They would have had to be in space for an extra four days. And while they were behind the moon, there would have been radio silence because it would have been blocking any radio transmissions between them and the Earth. Um, as it happens, because they did ended up, ended up doing it that way, they, they, they set a, an as yet unbroken record for the, the highest, um, you know, the, 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 the highest flight from Earth by any manned spacecraft. So, and, and you know, that still holds. Okay, so it was decided to put it into this free return tra trajectory. It wasn't in quite the right orbit because they were already preparing to land at, um, at, at the, uh, the crater Framaro. And so they had to get out of that orbit and go into the free return trajectory. And they calculated they needed, they weren't going to be able to use the main engines of the service module, you know, of the Danny roll. They had to use the weaker engines of the lunar module that was currently, you know, that at the moment is, is, is attached to the, the command and service modules. Okay. Uh, a much weaker engine because it was only needed to escape the moon's gravity, which is, which is you know, one-sixth of the gravity on the Earth. Um, but, but it was strong enough to be able to put it into the free return trajectory. So they, they did what uh, th that would have required a 34 second burn of the, of the rocket engine to put it into that orbit. Okay. Okay. There was, oh, and there was one more thing. They also count, they wanted, had they done that 34 second burn, then their re-entry uh, corridor would have taken them into the Indian Ocean 
Um, but the Americans didn't have as much naval support in the Indian Ocean. They preferred to splash down in the Pacific Ocean, where they've got much more, uh, had, they, you know, had more naval facilities. So they calculated they needed an additional four minute burn to put it into the correct corridor for that Pacific re-entry. So they could splash down in the Pacific Ocean. Yep. All right, so for this to have been pulled off, um, completely yeah. off the cuff and to get all three astronauts back safely, yeah. how, how big of an effort and how unprecedented of an effort must this have been? Okay, well, the, the first thing that they was decided to do, and this was one thing that had actually been, a possibility had been anticipated, they decided that they couldn't stay in the, the command module in the, the, the little cone capsule that's used for re-entry. They had to move into the lunar module, which had safety systems in there and life support systems. But it was only designed for two astronauts and it was only really designed to have enough, you know, enough backup and so on for 45 hours of... Um, but, but anyway, at, at that point, it was the safest place in town. So they moved into the lunar module and they shut down most of the systems to save power and electricity, oxygen and so on. So it was dark and it was cold. It got down to three degrees C inside the lunar module. So the idea was to stay in there as long as they could, preserve it as long as they could. Because they no longer had access to the water, from the fuel cells, they basically had to, one of the astronauts had to go into, um, back into the service module and get some of the waste water that had been left over from before and bring it into the, the lunar module, the little spidery craft. Uh, it turns out they only had enough water, well, they, they rationed their water to 200 mils per person per day. So one cup of water per person per day. That's not very much. Which, that's not very much. Okay. But the other problem with moving in, and as I say, it, the, the possibility of, of having to move people into lunar module was something that was considered in the design of the prog program, but nobody ever seriously thought it was ever going to have to be done. But the procedure had, you know, had been considered. But there was one problem with having three people inside the lunar module for several days. Uh, as I said, there was that problem with the water and, um, the other, and the amount of oxygen in there. But the other problem was that the carbon dioxide buildup, because they're breathing out carbon dioxide. And in space, the way you deal with the carbon dioxide is you have these canisters containing lithium hydroxide. So uh, and lithium hydroxide absorbs carbon dioxide. So they had um, canisters for absorbing carbon dioxide in the lunar module, but there was only enough there for two people for a couple of days. And, um, but there were going to be three people in there for, for rather longer. So, it, they knew that they had lithium hydroxide canisters in the command module, the, the one that they'd abandoned. But the problem was they weren't designed to fit 
in the lunar module. So what, what happens, the engineers back at NASA on the ground um, basically got together and they got everything that they knew that they had access to inside the Apollo craft, like gaffer tape and, and uh, um, paper and plastic and, and, you know, whatever else that was available that, that they could um, develop some sort of prepper-style method for, um, um, yeah, for, for, for solving the problem. So what the engineers de decide, uh, d developed was they took, they, just, they worked out that if they took the covers off the instruction manuals, they took the piece of plastic they had and the gaffer tape, they were able to make a kind of um, mailbox shaped adapter that would allow them to plug the big lithium hydroxide canisters from the, the service module, uh, in, sorry, the command module, and plug them into the CO2 scrubbers in the lunar module, you know, the spinery craft. Uh, so the engineers on the ground developed this, and then what they did was communicated to the astronauts, so they walked them through how to do this, you know, cut the plastic here, rip a piece of gaffer tape there and, you know, stick that in that. And it worked. So as soon as, as, soon as that happened, the, the carbon dioxide levels started to go down and that was one crisis averted. Oh, yeah, and another thing was, because it was three degrees C, it was very cold in there. So um, the two guys who were going to go on the moon, which would have been uh, Jim Lovell, and Fred Hayes, uh, they just put their moon boots on that kept them warm. But uh, Jack Swigert, who wasn't going to go on the moon, didn't have moon boots, so he had to um, make do with uh, you know put, putting a sort of a overcoat on. Uh, and unfortunately, unfortunately for him, he was the guy that had to get the water from the uh, fuel cells in the in the command module, and he got wet feet, so. Uh, and he had no, no moon boots, so he, he had to put up with three degrees C and wet feet. So that was pretty awful. Jeez. Not, not pleasant. You've been listening to Throwback Thursday, celebrating 50 years of Tune FM. Elsewhere in 1970, in April, President Richard Nixon orders a secret invasion of Cambodia to cut off North Vietnamese supply routes during the Vietnam War. When word reaches the U.S., anti-war sentiment reaches an all-time high, including plenty of hit songs. Up next, Spill the Wine by Eric Burden on 106.9 Tune FM, celebrating 50 years.
I dreamed I was in a Hollywood movie And that I was the star of the movie This really blew my mind The fact that me An overfed, long-haired, leaping gnome Should be the star of a Hollywood movie Mmm But there I was Mmm I was taken to a place The Hall of the Mountain King I stood high upon a mountain top Naked to the world In front of Every kind of girl There was long ones, tall ones, short ones, brown ones This is Throwback Thursday 1970, celebrating 50 years of Tune FM. Apollo 13 with Dr. Stephen Bosey. So how long exactly did it take them to get back to Earth after, after the incident? So, so following the accident, the return to Earth was approximately four days. I, d- I don't know ex- off the top of my head exactly how much it was, but about four days. So a very long time in some very unpleasant conditions. Oh, yeah. And don't forget that, yes, unpleasant conditions. And, and there were those radio silences as well. So nobody knew what they were doing or thinking while they were behind the moon uh, during the, that loop of the, the free return orbit uh, that took them behind the moon. So the other thing also is um, when, when you're re-entering, it's, it's a... Um, very common, you know, well-known phenomenon that when you're re-entering, and you would have seen 
I guess on TV, the pictures of, of capsules re-entering, moving very fast through the atmosphere, and it just you get, it gets very, very hot, and you're ionising the air around you. So during that period, that ionising air means where the air becomes conductive. So it's like a big conductive blanket, a bit like putting a, um, an aluminium hat on your head to protect yourself from, uh, from alien radio waves. You're surrounded, if you surround the capsule by a conductive plasma, you can't send radio signals through. So during that period of re-entry, there's also a radio blackout there. And for a normal re-entry uh, for the Apollo missions, that would have been roughly three minutes. But as it happened, because they you know, didn't have a lot of choice about their re-entry corridor or whatever, it turned out that they had six minutes of radio silence during re-entry. So again, you don't know. These people just burned up or they still alive. So, you know, we're quite a few scary moments, like icing on, on this cake of disaster. And to add insult to injury, they would normally, with a mission like this, you would jettison your wee-wee out into space. But the problem was that if you go and jettison your wee-wee out in space, you get that little spray of wee-wee, it's going to give you a little bit of thrust so they were worried that that little bit of, of yellow thrust would, um, would, might have actually shifted the, the craft out of the free return orbit. So they had to collect their wee-wee in little bands. Oh, no. Real <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. style here. <laughs> what impact did Apollo 13 have on the future of the Apollo program and the space program in general after that? Okay, well, firstly, um, the, 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 the most immediate impact of it was that by Apollo 13, people had become bored with lunar, lunar landings because there'd been two successful ones before. So the television stations didn't even do a live broadcast of the mission, right? Until, um, you know, until the, the, uh, that old saying, if it, if it bleeds, it leads, became a possibility. So all of a sudden, yes, now, now it, it was on uh, uh, you know, live television. Uh, that, that was the, the immediate effect. Um, another effect was that Richard Nixon awarded the Congressional Medal, Medal of Honor to the entire Apollo 13 mission operation team. Uh, actually, he was originally going to award it to the leader, but the, the, the leader of the mission said, no, no, give it to everybody. But in terms of technical impact well they redesigned the oxygen tanks that was a major a major change to avoid the problem that caused that in the first place they also um, introduced isolation valves so that you could isolate fuel cells from the oxygen tanks and there was some upgrading of some of the materials used in the tanks and and, and various systems to make them stronger and able to resist these kind of problems uh, a big change was that an emergency supply of 19 litres of water was stored in the command module. Yeah. An emergency and an emergency battery, uh, like the ones used in the lunar module, was put into the service module, you know, the Dunny roll. There were meant to be 20 Apollo missions as well, weren't there? Um, uh, yeah, I think, I think that's right. But Nixon shut it down after, the, after 17. Because yeah. Yeah. Uh, Basically, the idea was we, we, we won the race against the Russians. So, you know, why, why are we still sending people up there? 
Fair enough. Um, just one last question as a matter of personal curiosity more than anything else, because uh, yeah. regular listeners will know that I'm a big film buff. Um, oh, yeah. How true to life is the Tom Hanks film that uh, won a couple of Oscars? Look, my, as far as I know, they um, went to a lot of trouble to be pretty accurate. The one thing I do know is that the uh, the famous line is always misquoted, that um, they never actually said Houston, we had Houston, we have a problem. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yes, yes. Uh, what what um, in, in, in real life, Swigert said, Houston, we've had a problem. But in the movie, they make it present tense, which probably <laughs> which is more appropriate given, uh, uh, given the way things turned out. So, um, as I was saying, the, they went to a lot of trouble to, to keep the technical stuff accurate. There's just a few minor inaccuracies apart from the actual tense of what Swigert says. Uh, another, another slight technical inaccuracy. In the film, you hear the bang in the oxygen tanks almost immediately after the, the tanks get, um, get stirred. Uh, but, in, but in fact, it was about a minute and a half after that you hear the bang. In the film, the uh, launch vehicle was rolled out two days before launch, but in fact, in real life, it had been several weeks. Um, there was also a, an argument between Swigert and Hayes about who caused the problem, but uh, in real life, at least according to the astronauts, no, there was no such argument. And a, a few, there are a few other minor details that have of no technical consequences, a little bit of um, uh, just a little bit of shifting around who spoke to whom and when, but you know, that's okay. That's, that's, that's tolerable in the film. It, it doesn't, that wouldn't raise my, my um, scientist's hackles. Forgivable. For the sake of drama. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you and uh, thank you for helping us celebrate uh, what's been an awesome 50 years. Oh, yeah. Okay. Thank you very much for the opportunity. You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM. We're going to go back to the music now. Uh, don't forget to join us next week as we talk about a significant event from 1971. Thank you for listening to Throwback Thursday, celebrating 50 years of Tune FM. Don't forget to join us next week as we discuss the publication of the Pentagon Papers on June 13th, 1971. You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM, your home of student-powered radio for 50 years.